Welcome everyone to this week's uh, installation of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I am Finar Jørgensen and this is my co-host Dolly Jørgensen. Um, and our guest this week is Alda Baltrop Lewis, who's a research fellow in religion and theology at Australian Catholic University. Uh, and she will talk about her new book, Thoreau's Religion, Walden Woods, Social Justice and the Politics of Asceticism, that came out with Cambridge University Press this year. So, Ola, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for doing this, for hosting this series, and for inviting me. And I'm really happy to be joining you. I'm coming from Wurundjeri country in Melbourne, Australia, um, and I pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders past, present, and emerging, and um, thank them for their ongoing custodial relationship to these lands and waters. Um, so I'm going to talk about this recent book I had come out called Thoreau's Religion. I'm going to set up the situation the book joins sort of in the reception of Thoreau um, that I'm responding to. I'll explain how my disciplinary location in the study of religion might help that situation in Thoreau's reception. And then I'll briefly outline the chapters to give you a sense of the argument and um, conclude by describing something of what I have hoped the book might accomplish in our world for our um, environmental politics. So Henry David Thoreau's Walden, um, published in the United States in 1854, is such a classic of international environmentalist concern that many of you may know it by instinct whether or not you've actually read it. And it's a long purposefully meandering book. You probably know its plot. Thoreau went to the woods near Concord, Massachusetts to live deliberately, as he famously wrote. He built a tiny house by the shores of Walden Pond on land owned by Ralph Waldo Emerson. He grew beans and read books and went on walks. He laid on his belly to peer through the ice of the pond when it was frozen over during the winter. And he recorded his experiences in journals that he developed over nearly 10 years into Walden. So my book begins from a problem that comes to us from Thoreau's reception, where we have on, uh, received essentially two Thoreaus. On the one hand, we have the Thoreau of Walden, the one whose nature piety inspired him to live in the woods, to spend time among the birds and the trees and the woodchucks. And this Thoreau was a great naturalist. And then on the other hand, there's the figure of Thoreau we have from the essay that has come to be called Civil Disobedience, the Thoreau whose night in jail for not paying taxes in protest against the colonialist war on Mexico, inspired Gandhi and then Martin Luther King Jr. to nonviolence in the pursuit of social justice. This Thoreau was a political rabble rouser and he inspired liberationist politics of the 20th century. So I'm not the first person to have noticed the phenomenon of the two Thoreaus. If you've read a recent book on Thoreau, you've probably seen this trope play out. They are for the most part, two threads of Thoreau's reception driven by mostly separate readings of his so-called nature writing and his political essays. Um, there have been recent movements, as I say, which my work joins to try to weave the two threads together. But these recent movements are drawing on an even longer history of pointing out the two throws. So it's not just a contemporary issue. As early as 1877, Alexander Jap was puzzled by the two throws. He's an early biographer. He described his motivation for writing his biography of Thoreau when he wrote, as Thoreau could do what he did and never feel as though there was any inconsistency between Walden life and anti-slavery action, I was desirous to satisfy myself by closer scrutiny of his real aims and objects. So Jap saw a tension between Walden life and anti-slavery action. And he thought the study of Thoreau's life might yield insights about how the two might be held together. Leo Marx wrote an essay in 1978 that was titled The Two Thoreaus. Jane Bennett wrote in Thoreau's Nature in 2002 that it was the Thoreau of the naturalist writings rather than that of the political essays who featured prominently in her book. Laura Dessel Walls's 2017 biography, which will likely be the standard for a generation to come, suggests that the two Thoreaus are one. Walls writes, today, 200 years after his birth, we have invented two Thoreaus, both of them hermits, yet radically at odds with one another. One speaks for nature, the other for social justice. Yet the historical Thoreau was no hermit 
And as Thoreau's own record shows, his social activism and his defense of nature sprang from the same roots. So my book describes how this is so, how Thoreau's naturalism and his politics are part of the same thing by way of attention to his interest in religion. I'm a scholar of religion, that's my disciplinary location. And so um, I study religious texts, practices, and traditions. My subfield in that academic area focuses on the philosophical study of religious and ethical ideas in the political context where they are worked out. Scholars tend not to study Thoreau as a religious thinker. And when they study his politics, they usually focus on his political essays. But Thoreau's religion and politics come together powerfully in Walden against interpretations of Thoreau as a social, a political, and a religious. My book argues that Walden articulates a form of what I call political asceticism. With this concept, the central conceptual contribution of the book, I am alluding to the ways in which Thoreau was drawing on and contesting religious practices of asceticism or renunciation as, for example, those taken up by monks and nuns. So he's playing with the analogy. We sometimes call him a hermit, but he has in mind these examples from religious traditions of people who practice this kind of thing. But the phrase political asceticism is meant to strike readers as somewhat surprising. The practices of renunciation pursued by monks and nuns are often imagined as first wholly negative and self-denying, as opposed to positive or like toward pursuing some end. And second, retreating from politics. Thoreau offers a different view on both counts. His asceticism, as I describe it, is aimed at positive goods, not just at renunciation. And some of those goods are not only personal, but communal, communal and ultimately I say political. So my interpretation aims to show how Thoreau's time in the woods was oriented not only toward contemplative ecstasy in nature, but also toward just economy. For those enslaved in the South, for those who labored in the North, and for those whose lives he knew best and conquered. And I'll just say something now about the argument. I make this argument through five chapters. Um, and the first three are addressed to caricatures of Thoreau, first as asocial. So to address this caricature of Thoreau as asocial, uh, the first chapter presents a, a view of his time in the woods as taking up membership in an alternative society, not the one people expect him to belong to, admittedly not in Concord, but a society nonetheless. In that chapter, I'm especially engaged with and indebted to a growing field of scholarship that you all are very familiar with, I'm sure, being conducted across the humanities and social sciences, often under the rubric multi-species and indebted to the work of critical theory, which shows just how diverse social networks are and how much we miss of social life when we limit our understanding of the social to the living human. So in the second chapter, in responding to a caricature of Thoreau as apolitical, I describe how Thoreau's renunciative practices in the woods were of a piece with his politics against industrial labor and how they were involved in political contestation ongoing among abolitionists over what a just economy requires. I'm particularly engaged there in the second chapter with political theorists and aiming to uncover a more relational ethic oriented toward more common goods than interpreters of Thoreau's politics usually find who are interpreting him in a sort of individualist democratic tradition. Um, in the third chapter, in response to caricatures of Thoreau as a religious, I offer a close reading of his critique of philanthropy at the end of economy, the first chapter of Walden. I argue that this critique was motivated by Christian theological commitments about the significance of the Christian gospel. So there, I'm especially interested in contesting a view which remains implicit among many of Thoreau's interpreters that he's something like post-Christian by demonstrating his involvement in theological contestation. So it's, I, I try to say there's, a, there's an argument among people who take Christian theology seriously, and he's one of those people. The fourth chapter tries to elaborate what I see as Thoreau's um, response to his critique of philanthropy. So if these philanthropists get it wrong about what the Christian gospel requires, what ought people to be doing? And that, that's where I describe his interest in ascetic practice and voluntary poverty. And I interpret them as, as offering his own positive social, political and religious response that Walden was sort of aimed at, at, at 
responding to the critique he had made of philanthropy. The fifth chapter responds to a worry that people sometimes have about asceticism. So if I've said Thoreau's an ascetic, um, I try to respond to the worry that it's dour. Um, Thoreau himself faced this worry. He wrote, sometimes it seemed like his friends were uh, thought that he had gone to the woods on purpose to freeze himself, uh, that it was just a sort of self-sacrificial gesture. Um, and the chapter is motivated by a concern that contemporary environmentalism is often tempted to despair, confronted as it is by a difficult future. The chapter focuses on the puzzling coincidence of Thoreau's earnestness with his humor. And I argue there that there are some things, and political asceticism may be one of them, that are best articulated while laughing. I uncover Thoreau's delight in the woods, the way that this form of asceticism issued in a kind of joy in his life. He wrote Walden under the force of a conviction that what turned human hearts toward anything, including toward a more just future, was their enjoyment of the good in it. And he wrote Walden to try to seduce his readers into a better life. So this, just to conclude, I'll say something about what, I, what I've hoped that the book would accomplish for our world. I read um, a book in graduate school in 2014, Willis Jenkins, The Future of Ethics. And it's a book about how environmental ethics ought to begin from concrete problems and adapt to changing circumstances. His work on the book he wrote had changed his mind about what social ethics is, rather than a translation of theory to practice, as in a model where like what ethics does is come up with theories and then apply them to concrete situations. He came to a view in which ideas and practices form inherited patterns of life that agents can redeploy to confront new challenges. He wrote, religious ethics, which is my subfield of religious studies, should focus less on constructing and applying religious worldviews, which is something people have spent a lot of time doing. Like Christianity says you should be green for these theological reasons. He thought you should focus less on that and more on inviting, tutoring, and pressuring moral communities of all kinds to make better use of their inheritances. I've come to think that this way of describing the work of ethics asks scholars who do it to ask two preliminary critical questions when conducting their work. First, to what moral communities do I belong? And second, how can I specifically, as opposed to any other, encourage those moral communities to make better use of their inheritances? An answer to these questions I thought might help me figure out how to make use of my work for some modicum of good. And as I write a little bit about in this book, one moral community I belong to as an expatriate American living in Australia is white environmentalists. Try as I might to cast my loyalties wider than that. I nonetheless find that by accident of birth and force of habit or in a different idiom, structural racism and implicit bias, this is the place I find myself. And when I ask the second question, what inheritance do we white environmentalists have that we ought to be making better use of, Thoreau seemed a clear answer. His reception, beginning with Emerson's eulogy, which cast him as more of a crank and a loner than he was, and continuing through the 20th century, when literary readings became, to some extent, dislocated from the social history that shaped him and us, the reception has undermined a lesson he could teach and we could use now, nature piety of the kind he described in Walden requires social justice. The people I love, in many cases, my family members who spend their time in board meetings about rivers or lobbying their city council about toxic materials and playgrounds. Could I convince those people, I wondered, to spend a little more of their time on the structural injustices in the broader communities sustained by those rivers or on the playgrounds in the neighborhood that is beyond theirs where fewer concerned parents have time to show up for city council meetings. This is one of the things this book is trying to do to nudge one of my moral communities toward a more justice seeking environmentalist mode. Too often among my white environmentalist communities, Thoreau is remembered only for his contemplative living. This one-sided picture depoliticizes the Walden story reading into it a problematic, isolated conception of wilderness. 
Thoreau is not only Thoreau is not the only religious mystic treated to this de depoliticizing gesture, of course. Think of Francis of Assisi or any number of others. Monasticism has often been invested in a re-envisioning of unjust economic life. And the ethical tradition represented by these figures and their voluntary poverty has an economic critique at its heart. And I think where writing about the geniuses of contemplation, Thoreau included, neglects the social, economic, and political significance of their poverty, we spiritualize, in the bad sense, the great contemplatives and ignore the important economic critique that was so often enmeshed in their contemplative practice. My hope for this book is that it can offer a reconfigured image of Thoreau for contemporary environmentalism. Political scientist William Chalupka has argued that for the environmentalist movement that began around the first Earth Day, Thoreau left an apolitical legacy. Partly because of Thoreau, that movement, he thought, endorsed an ethic that collapsed into moralism and failed to address its own elitism. As scholars like Dorsetta Taylor in the United States have shown, much environmentalism has itself reinscribed race, gender, and class injustices. My account of Thoreau's religion aims to show that even if some of Thoreau's environmentalist heirs have been disinterested in social justice along lines of race, class, and gender. Their mistake was not his. Thoreau's religion, as I describe it, was an integrated vision of nature piety and social justice, and it might serve as inspiration for the more equitable reconfiguration of environmental politics that is, of course, already underway. Thank you so much for uh, listening. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Alda. That was a wonderful introduction. And I mean, such an interesting topic. So because I got to thinking about how um, I, I worked on medieval history uh, to start with, I'm, I'm currently doing contemporary extinction, uh, which I'm sure in some way probably leads to each other. But the, the, the talk about the ways in which we envision these, these hermits um, and medieval piety as somehow being non-political and the, the legacy that that has, I think is a really interesting one because I remember my master's supervisor, Sally Vaughn had written about St. Anselm, right? Who's a saint, but arguing that he was a very strong political player um, in, in the, the um, you know, within the English court. And that rubbed a lot of people within religious studies the wrong way, um, making that kind of argument. Um, but I think your case is exactly doing that, which is to say that you, if you have a strong um, moral compass and base, why would you not be involved? politically, right? How, how can you actually uh, separate those things? Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about kind of the back history of, yeah, of, of our thinking about asceticism and being a hermit, being a monk, and how that, um, yeah, how we need to rethink that in light of your study. Yeah, so I, I mean, I do hope that this political asceticism idea um, resonates with some work that's already ongoing and then also contributes to movements in the, this direction. I, I wanna, maybe I'll email you after, but I wanna get that reference to the Amselm thing because I think that there's a lot of us. I, I, think, I think we're on a team. And, um, and it's, I mean, in the study of early Christianity, it's been ongoing for a long time. Um, I, because those periods are not my expertise, I don't have as vast a, uh, in any case, those periods are not my expertise. I, I heard you asking something really interesting, which is like, how did, how did we come to think of this gesture as a, uh, uh, an apolitical one. And I don't really know what I think about the answer to that. I'm just, um, I'm just sort of reflecting on it. And I mean, I think in, in Thoreau's case, which is the one, of course, I'm best equipped to talk about, 
one of the things I think is true is that the reception in the 20th century was really deeply shaped by the situation in the United States, especially of um, settler colonialism, Jim Crow, segregation and resegregation. So um, there's an opportunity among sort of elite white communities to take, take the nature piety out because it's the thing that, that we have the most attachment to. And, and we don't need the other part because we're not facing the, we don't think we need, we're, we're wrong of course, but we don't think we need to be liberated. Um, and, and so we can, we can see the nature piety somehow more clearly. Um, and that's, I think, what, how, how, the, how the separate reception of Walden and civil dis disobedience comes about, right? So, so Gandhi and Martin Luther King need the other part and they find it. Um, and, and I think that the reason, I mean, we're, we're particularly well situated now, I think, to, to avoid that problem because we're coming to see more and more that of course the environmental trouble that we face is related to the political uh, domination that we face. That uh, I mean, uh, environmentalist politics more and more in order to be successful needs to push back against um, the collection of capital and power by exploitative industry, right? So um, we, we are learning through our experience that those things are bound together. Uh, I don't know if that's an answer, but. No, I think that's that's a, a great answer, and I I really see it, you know, interestingly, um, in uh, the current Pope, right, in Pope Francis. What you see also is this tie between, in a very clear way, I think, between um, environmental action um, and social justice, um, and so tying those things is is I, I think what you're arguing is that this is actually where Thoreau is, even though people haven't recognized that that's what Thoreau was really about. Yeah, and Francis is interesting, especially because he, he takes the name Francis. So I have a friend who's done some work on Francis, Francis's poverty movements as, as political movements against the accumulation of capital and power by medieval power centers. And Teresa, of course, has um, gets almost kicked out of the church for doing economic reform, insisting that the communities that she founded, Teresa of Avila, that the communities she founded um, uh, sustain themselves rather than acquiring capital from the, from the surrounding places. So it I mean, I really do believe that like all the way along, of course there's contestation and there's, there's, there's monastic movements that are being used by other political forces. That's just a, a true thing. One of the feet, one of one of the things that monasticism is doing is trying to say um, something about just labor. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess the other the thing that really struck me in your talk, uh, or that I wanted you to talk more about, was this multi-species communities and the the multi-species world in which Thoreau found himself. Um, could you say more about? how he talks about the multi-species world and where that fits into his religious worldview. Yeah, sure. So um, the example that I use, that I, the example that I think is best is, is just a moment from his journals when he's made a friend who also lived in the woods um, early on in his sojourn there, you know, he spent two years living in the woods. He meets this woodchopper, the woodchopper becomes a character in Walden. And in his journal, there's this amazing moment when um, he and the woodchopper are sitting chatting and a chickadee joins them, a small bird. And they start talking about the chickadee. And um, then the chickadee also gets a word into the conversation. Um, and so I interpret this moment as a sort of uh, interspecies communication moment of which he has many. Um, I like this one because it's particularly communal. So it's not just him and the bird. It's not just him recognizing that there's another um, personality involved, but the woodchopper does too. And they talk, they talk together, uh, they share language in this way. 
I also interpret that chickadee as, um, I think that Thoreau might have known some of what the chickadee meant when it called out, um, because chickadees do this thing called mobbing behavior where um, they're trying to tell other chickadees that there's a predator and um, get them to come around and harass the predator and make the predator go away. So I also use this chickadee as a, a kind of image for what Walden is trying to do, which is to call out uh, and say, can you hear me? Will you join me trying to resist the forces that are working against us? And uh, I also in that chapter, am really interested in the history of Walden Woods um, as a particular place. And especially because we, I mean, in this sort of popular imagination, cast it as this um, depopulated wilderness. Thoreau doesn't do that at all, partly through the multi-species issue. Like he, he sees um, characters who, other, other characters who live there, um, human and non-human. He also, um, interestingly, is really interested in the history of the place, the human history of the place. And especially in the fact that it was a site um, for a, what he describes as a small village of people who had been enslaved in Concord around the time of the American Revolution and then were freed. Um, and in the generation before him, they made their way um, in freedom. They enacted their own freedom um, in Walton Woods. And I take him as, as taking them as a kind of example of the kind of community that he's looking for, one that resists the forces of domination that slavery represented and that finds a way to, to live together in some, some kind of justice that they worked out there. Um, yeah. So we had a question from Adrian who was wondering about the, these ideals of asceticism being depoliticized in Western public discourse. Um, wondering, I guess there's kind of two strands here. One is, are they related to something about the Reformation and uh, the wars of religion and that it was actually very political? Uh, so you somehow want to depoliticize it. Um, but also its connection to Asian tradition and aesthetic practices, aesthetic practices there. So um, how do those two different strands play into your reading of Thoreau? Yeah, so Thoreau, when he writes about voluntary poverty, says the geniuses of voluntary poverty were Chinese, Hindu, Persian, and Greek. So he's got really this vast world philosophy in mind when he writes about it. I, because of my own sort of disciplinary location and training, I focus, and because of Thoreau's situation in a, in a kind of um, Christian setting, I focus on the Christian stuff, but there's lots of other great work on, on the influence of other traditions on him. And I think there should be more, like I, I would like to see more um, in that vein. Um, I think the history, uh, what about the history, European history of asceticism? Oh, um, it's, it's really interesting. Emerson, so Thoreau, Thoreau's, um, has Emerson as a kind of teacher and model and Emerson in this lecture called Literary Ethics um, says that there, he, he recommends a more ascetic scholastic life to his listeners in this one lecture. And he, he says at one point, you will forgive me gentlemen if I say that we have need of a more ascetic um, style of life. And I wonder there if something about this history um, with the wars of religion and everything else, the, the sort of Protestant history is at play and just the way that um, these figures in, in some cases in the American Renaissance and specifically in transcendentalism had really interesting relationships to the history of Catholicism and reformation. And um, that's not something I've written a ton about, but I, um, I do think they're sort of making an appeal and also partly as their way of pushing back against the Calvinism and Unitarianism they're responding to. Um, so yeah, it's all, it's all tied up. Well, the first part of that had been on the, the kind of Asian influences and Pratik had a, had a, a question for you, um, which has to do with that kind of complexity of the moral vision of nature. So um, he'd written a comment to me. So it's true that the, the present environmental crisis can be located at the loss of spirituality and moral communities, um, but 
does it not your your narrative then present a loss regain story which can be difficult to apply if it's not actually the case and so he brings up that in many parts of the world like india um the religious and the spiritual never went away from what is nature right so nature and and you know you're there in australia right the aboriginal view of of nature and religion are not separate things um and he he said and the problem is sometimes that's actually a problematic relationship so uh india for example the river ganges is a goddess and yet they pollute it in every possible way so having this nature religion doesn't necessarily mean you're somehow better off um in in our world um so is there his question comes down to can there be a secular non-spiritual moral vision of nature and yes Thoreau was, how would throw i guess would be the you know add-on how would throw have have said this or mm. think about this uh secular non-spiritual moral vision of nature yeah i'm interested in what you mean critique by secular just because um there's so many different ways to imagine what it might mean for there to be a secular moral vision and i'm wondering if you um think that uh like would a secular moral vision do better because i um it seems to me that lots one of the challenges is that is that lots of us have um, already. This is sort of part of what I I wanted to say, but maybe I left out. Um, so many of us already care about living in peace with nature, and yet our politics fails to achieve the ends that are required. And so I, I kind of agree with you, except I think that maybe a secular moral vision might not be enough itself either. Like the, the stories we tell are important for motivating us, but really we need to figure out how to transform our politics. Like we seem to have good enough moral visions already. Um, there seem to be practical political problems that we're facing, not in my view, um, moral deficiencies. Yeah, I thought, um, I'd actually like to follow up on that then, this idea of politics, because we talked a bit about depolitization. Um, so could you then say a little bit more about what kind of politics he is moving away from? And should we see it as a depolitization or as, in a way, a reinterpretation of politics? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, in particular, this idea of Thoreau and the public, um, you know, documenting excessively uh, what he's doing. So, you know, he, he's performing particular ways of life, particular philosophies. And there's been all kinds of debate, you know, about, you know, was he a, a hypocrite in a way in, in say, writing and saying some things and doing entirely different things. But I think there is something in this idea of the performance. I kind of envision like if Thoreau today, he would have his own reality show on TV, right? <laughs> so there's there's some of that. Uh, so this this exploring and demonstrating particular ways of being. And that can also be seen as very political, I think. Yeah, for sure. One of the, one of the practices I describe as his most political practice is the writing one, the, the making public in a sense. Uh, that seems really important. It's, it's both, I think, the, the practice of writing for him, uh, a practice of self-formation. So he, tr he tries to become more attentive to the multi-species community around him through writing down what he sees. But it's also this political practice, uh, uh, communal practice oriented toward the, the call of the chickadee, like calling out and saying, can you hear me? And will you join me in trying to create a, a more practical politics? Of course, he's not in, in his own period, he's, um, an activist and he's doing a lot with respect to politics, but he's, he's not a transformative figure. But, you know, in the context of 20th century um, movements, he, he does become quite important, so. Uh, just, uh, there's a follow-up then also from uh, Magna here on uh, 
this asceticism idea. So he is wondering if you can see a parallel uh, between Thoreau's attitude and uh, the Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness uh, and his uh, deep ecology. So which is very much about, you know, practicing and refining the simple lifestyle uh, from the 1960s onwards. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, and that would be, you know, a more general thing, if you think about the 60s and 70s and ideals mm -hmm. of a new eco life is, is, you know, how do you see Thoreau fitting with that? Yeah, I, I want to, to bring more politics to that, because it seems to me that the simple life is, is um, good for the people who practice it often. Um, and it can form them, us, to, to in certain, can teach us important things. But because of this issue I'm describing about how environmental politics really requires a, a better democratic politics, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to draw Thoreau in a sense away from an interpretation of him where he's a model for moving to the woods and toward an interpretation of him where he's a model for climate justice. <laughs> um, yeah. Great, Sam, you have a question. I can uh, unmute you here and you can ask it. Hi, thank you. Um, it's a really interesting, um, it sounds like a really interesting book and I've really loved the discussion so far. Um, I was thinking based, I, I, I'm thinking kind of using some of the ideas that we've already, um, have already been put into the mix about whether, um, whether there's a possibility that we can think through <clears throat> this um, Thoreau as, as an example of a figure who is written out, who, who is kind of depoliticized as part of the construction of what the political might mean in the 19th and 20th century West. I'm, I'm, I, I suppose, as well as the wars of religion, which has already been mentioned, I'm thinking of how colonial states define different groups in order to manage and control them. So you identify who the, the secular power is because you want to um, control them with money and trade and wealth. And, you, and then you write a definition of the religious figures that is they are mystical, they, they deal with the spiritual and they are, they are separate from the state. And you try to depower those as much as as much as possible. So I, I wonder if this depolicization of Thoreau and related kind of areas of thought sheds light in general on kind of how power is constructed during this time, that, that it, power is rooted in secular networks that want to remain secular in contrast to the medieval um, period that we started talking about. And maybe also networks, so, so power, there's a really interesting um, chapter in a book called, um, am I going to remember? It's by Akil Bilgrami. And he's writing about contests among the Royal Society in the 18th century about um, whether matter has spirit in it, basically. And, and the idea that he comes up with is that there's an alliance coming out among clerical leaders, scientists, and um, state powers that uh, who, who want the interpretation that there's not spirit in matter because it allows for this kind of an expansionist power you're describing. I'm really sympathetic to that interpretation that he has in that chapter. Um, I haven't thought that much about the how to describe that in a in a 20th century American context, which is the one I know the most about. Um, I would like to I would like to think more about how to describe that in that context. That seems like a really good idea, and I thank you for it. Yeah, what the alliances are. I'm just seeing what the what are the alliances among the religious powers, the secular powers, and the industrial powers that that would lead to a situation where it's advantageous to portray Thoreau as a apolitical figure. 
that's a question I'm going to try to think more about. Great. Um, yeah, because uh, that's, you know, power structures are at the, the heart, really, of all of these, all of his relationships, then, as I hear you talking about them in your book, uh, with both nature and with social uh, justice. Um, so I was wondering if you could say more about, um, does Thoreau have an idea of, because social justice in, in his time and in dealing with slavery and uh, dealing with um, racism and what's his relation or how does he deal with that relate, related to nature? So do, does he have in his mind a relationship um, mm -hmm. going on uh, between the black Americans or I guess in a way not Americans yet um, and, and um, yeah, and nature and this multi-species community? I mean, in the way I try to describe it in the book, he wants all members to have, a, in a certain sense, a kind of equality. Um, in that they deserve the kind of justice that he's trying to describe. So whereas some visions of, um, of liberal theory, especially, think that justice might be a principle that we could describe, say, justice as fairness. There's this 20th century feminist literature about relational ethics in which justice obtains when the relationship between us is set right, rather than when a principle is applied to our relationship or to, to, to our situation. And I try to interpret Thoreau as taking up this kind of relational justice, um, this kind of relational justice with respect to the other creatures who live in the woods, with respect to the other members of his polity, um, citizens and not yet citizens. Um, it's also true and important to say, I think that um, abolitionist politics in this period and its relationship to racism is really complicated. So there are a lot of anti-slavery advocates who are against slavery because they don't want black people in America. Um, and Thoreau is not, I think, one of them, but he does have um, uh, less than the people around him, I believe, but of course, um, to an important extent, the ideology of white supremacy. That is the view that um, Anglo people are superior in certain senses is, is certainly in his work and life, but not to the extent that he thinks people should be enslaved and much less than other people. I mean, while he was living in the woods, he seems to have had um, at least one and maybe more um, people who were on the run from slavery in the South stay in the cabin with him um, in their attempt to to go north. So he's really actively involved in trying to protect people from slavery. And um, as you know, in his slavery in Massachusetts, he thinks the enslavement of any means a, a corruption of the state that he lives in. Um, what he had lost was a country, he says, because of, because of this problem. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about architecture, because we know we talked about politics and philosophy, but I mean, in a way, you can't talk about Thoreau without also talking about the, the cabin he built, uh, which is such an iconic part of this. And I think it's also very important for this ideal of him as, uh, as a hermit, right? Because the cabin as a way where you get away from all the rest of the things of society where you can also then in a way focus. Uh, so the cabin then uh, in relation to, I mean, a other religious structure, but also other, I would say, social uh, structures, which of course he used all the time. Uh, it's not like he was uh, ignoring the rest of society. Yeah, I actually, I have this passage that I've become fixated on in the last few weeks, and I hope that I can find it. 
Um, probably not going to be able to, so I'll just tell it as a story. Um, he, in, when he's in that first chapter where, as you say, he documents things overzealously, partly I think as a joke, like so much of Walden is a joke and, and it, um, so much of interpreting it, I think is figuring out where the jokes are. Um, and I think that some of the overzealous uh, calculation is part of this. It's as Stanley Cavell wrote, it's sort of making fun of the, the, the public traditions of accounting and, and trying to suggest that like, maybe we should spend, maybe we should think of our time not as money, but as something that, that's a different kind of thing. And so that chapter on economy, I think does this kind of over precise financialization of time, partly in order to suggest, no, let's do a different thing. Like the stuff he describes in the middle of the book, which is precisely not financializing time, but, but treating it as what it is, which is like a life. Um, so there's that, but also in the story about building the house specifically, I noticed just the last time I was reading it that he says that he invited um, other people to help him raise the cabin, not because he needed help, but so as to not miss the opportunity for neighborliness, which so much of the book is also about being a neighbor, like how, how we get on with others and um, when we come close to them and when we retreat from them. Um, and all of those dynamics. And, and I, I love it that the house was put together together um, on purpose and, and not out of any need, but because it's kind of a fun thing to do. And I, I really like, I, I take that as an image of, of what he's trying to describe, which is a, a practice that's sociable on purpose in, in ways that are actually good um, rather than uh, that the sort of frenetic um, he describes the other thing as a kind of frenetic, always having to be together. In any case, the point is to try to be together well um, so that it's good for us. Well, that's a, a great point to uh, think about that togetherness and then what your book is calling us as scholars of environmental humanities. I mean, what that togetherness might look like um, what the call for both natural, you know, nature justice and social justice um, together look like in our practices. Um, so I was wondering if you have some, some thoughts about that, um, what you would like us to do as a community um, with this, this uh, with your book, with, it, with your call. That's such an amazing question. I, I haven't thought about it that much, honestly, because you guys are already doing so many good things. <laughs> um, keep doing what you're doing is one of the things. Um, and he also, you know, there's some of my favorite passages in Walden are, are sort of purposefully pluralist, which is to say, he says there ought to be as many different kinds of lives as there are people. Uh, I'm, I'm just in my character kind of resistant to, to programmatic um, requests. But I do, I guess one of the things I want to say is, is something that I think is already ongoing. Like I, I've joined it more than I'm calling for it, I think. But um, to, to look for the ways that our histories have um, boxed us into describing communities um, as isolated from one another when they're entangled or something like that. Um, and and in, I guess that's coming most especially out of this, the history um, of the community who lived in the woods before Thoreau. So, so how could it be that, that there's like a whole 20th century history of the interpretation of Walden that neglects the fact that there was a community in the woods before him? And I think part of the answer to that question is a kind of erasure, like the insistence, and this is so true um, in the American context at least, um, uh, about the dispossession of indigenous people in North America, just the ways in which those histories are somehow set apart um, it seems like there ought to be a way to integrate them, to, to continue to study Thoreau because um, th that's a book that's interesting um, in addition to lots of other things, but, but to show the ways that it's related 
to the entangled histories of um, settler colonialism and slavery and whatever the issues in particular places are um, to, to work through their entanglements, I guess, is one of the things that this book is trying to do, inspired by lots of others who are already doing that better than me. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's just so important to, of, a, of a concern you raise here, which is which, which stories get told, right? Which ones get left out of your story? And so one of the things I was really glad to have you on today is that we're bringing religion uh, explicitly because there, there are people that are working on, um, you know, religion and nature and green thought environmentalism. Um, so I was wondering in, in closing off the reflections uh, here for today, if you had some thoughts about where your particular discipline, religion, needs to contribute more to the environmental humanities um, discussion in general. Yeah, I mean, I, the, um, the place I see this most, and this is um, particular to my own expertise in the study of religion, but is, um, it's another one of these entangled history moments where those liberationist movements through the 20th century were always already entangled in religious movements. And yet sometimes those, the, the history, the ways in which um, those liberationist movements are connected to the to religion, religious ones get left out of the liberationist movements. And so I, for me, the place I'm going, um, and again, I'm hesitant to be programmatic about what other people should do, but the place I'm going is to, to try to, um, environmental justice starts to become a discourse um, insofar as I understand the history of it um, in a sort of post-civil rights period. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of a gap. Um, Martin Luther King in the United States dies in the late 60s and then environmental justice, people start pointing out that there are differential um, environmental harms in the 80s, late 70s and 80s. But, but people act as though the 70s doesn't have this. And, and that's one continuous story, right? Like, um, you know, Martin Luther King died at a sanitation workers strike. Um, and that's an environmental justice story too. And then there, the movements for environmental justice are coming out of religious um, communities in some cases. And the way that narrative, uh, connecting that narrative seems really important. And I guess I would say there's analogous issues in other places where the religious part of the story, for whatever reason, just gets left out. Um, All right, thank you for that. Uh, our time is coming up to an end, so we should uh, wrap up now. So I just want to thank you, Olaf, for uh, this really interesting uh, talk and discussion also. Uh, and also thank everyone in the audience for coming. I really appreciate um, being with you and all these questions were so interesting. I'm definitely coming back for more of your book talks.